Well, welcome back to our sermon series through the book of Mark. We are so glad you're here. Uh, Whether you're new to the Bible or joining us for the first time in this series, we are walking through a book of the Bible called Mark, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, We believe that these are the words of life and the very word of God to us. Um, even down to the individual grammar on every single page. Uh, While there are many different genres in the Bible, Mark is what's called a gospel. Um, It's one of four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. That's part of the New Testament, and so um, it's probably about three-fourths of the way through your Bible, uh, if you've got one in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, Uh, You can click on the Bible tab just below this video, Um, but we would love for you to have your own copy of the Bible. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we would love uh, to give you one. So please reach out to us at office at santacruzbaptist.com, and and we would love uh, to get one to you as our gift to you. Um, If you do have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and open it up to the book of Mark. Um, Even though we're in this awkward time of not getting to meet together um, and doing services online, uh, I encourage each of you to to come to the service as if we were gathering together at our building. Um, Sing with all your heart. Confess sin. Pray and listen with uh, open Bibles and pens in hand. Um, Today, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 3, Verses 20 through 30. Mark 3, 20 through 30. Let's read the text. This is the word of the Lord. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind, meaning Jesus. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. If you've uh, ever heard of C.S. Lewis of Chronicles of Narnia fame, uh, he wasn't just a children's book author. Uh, He wrote so many great books dealing with major worldview issues. Uh, If you don't know his story of coming to to faith, it's pretty great, but that's for uh, another time. But one of his most famous books outside of Narnia is a book called Mere Christianity. 
Um, it's a fantastic book. It's a hard book to read, but it's worth it. Um, in it, he, he makes a logical and reasonable argument for God in general, um, or for the existence of God. And then he takes it a step further and makes a logical and reasonable argument, not just for a nebulous God, but for the Christian God of the Bible. It's had a profound influence on countless people over the years. Well, one of the arguments that he makes in the book has come to be known as the Lord Lunatic or Liar argument with reference to Jesus. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about this argument before. Instead of trying to paraphrase it for you this morning, I'm just going to read it to you in C.S. Lewis's words. Here's what he says. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who, has, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, why do I share this line of thought with you? Well, number one, because it's a great question or it's a great dilemma for all of us to work out in our minds. Was Jesus Lord, lunatic, or liar? Uh, there's no room for him to be just a good man or just a, a good teacher. Because of what he said, he must be one of those three. So it's a great dilemma for all of us to work out in our minds. But second, our text today has a very similar structure to it, if you noticed. I've titled today's sermon, Deranged, Demonic, or Deity? Deranged, Demonic, or Deity? As we've said, each week in our study of the book of Mark, uh, Mark, as an inspired author, is constantly driving us to ask the question, who is Jesus? This week, uh, we get to see how some people actually in the text are answering that question. No one thought he was just a good teacher. I want us to see that very clearly. So let's look again at the text. This is... The first reaction to Jesus from his family. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, Then he, meaning Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. 
It's easy just to, to read over verses like that and not think too much about it. But this is his own family going out to seize him. Uh, the actual word there means to arrest. So what's going on? This is an intervention of some sort. Jesus has poked the bee's nest one too many times. He's stirred up controversy. They're worried that it might even affect them as a family. They are also probably worried about his health and his financial well-being. He has so many people following him that the text tells us that they could not even eat. So they're saying, Jesus, come on. This isn't sustainable. You're out of your mind. This statement reminds me of when the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa and Festus in Acts chapter 26. He's standing there before the king and the governor, telling about his conversion to Christianity, and look at what happens. So, Acts chapter 26, verses 24 through 25. This is Paul. Uh, and he, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Paul, you're out of your mind. Jesus, you're out of your mind. People think that, that Jesus and Paul are crazy for saying what they're saying and, and believing what they're believing. Nothing's changed, has it? Has anyone ever accused you of being crazy for believing the gospel? If not, why not? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, to the world, the word of the cross is foolish. It's folly and crazy. Now, anyone who takes their faith seriously and speaks about Christ and his cross will be accused of being out of their mind at some point or another. Who is Jesus? His family thinks he's deranged. But let's see. A second option. Look with me at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So, who is Jesus? According to these guys, he's demonic. Beelzebul was known as the lord of the demonic realm. In other words, they're insisting that Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. Before we see how Jesus responds, let me just stop and ask you the question. Have you ever been misunderstood or misrepresented even when you were standing for or, or speaking the right things? It happened to Jesus. Take comfort in that. 
Your Lord has walked in your shoes. So, how does Jesus respond? He responds with reason or, or logic, and then with glorious hope. First, let's see Jesus' logic in verses 23 through 26. It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So the scribes couldn't deny that Jesus had power. They'd all seen him perform miracles, heal people, cast out demons. So they couldn't deny that Jesus had power. So they challenge the source of that power. They say, he must be doing all of this by Satan's power. The only other alternative is that he is who he says he is. And they're not about to concede that, right? So Jesus points out an easy flaw in their argument. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? See, Jesus has been casting out demons who are working for Satan, ruining people's lives. If Jesus is demonic and casting out demons, Jesus points out, that's a losing game. If, if the scribes are hoping for Satan's downfall, they should be happy that Satan is attacking himself, following their own logic. In other words, Jesus' point is, if I'm possessed by Satan, this is a, a circular firing squad. And Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. You should be rejoicing following your logic. Do you see that? Now, this isn't the main point of the text by any means. This is simply Jesus using logic to show the scribes how wrong their conclusions were. But... There is a nugget of truth here that we can't miss. In the middle of Jesus' logic, he says in verse 24 and 25, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. That's true for demons. But it's also true for us. As Christians and as a church. So hear this. Christian unity is vital to Christian mission and to the glory of God. I'll say that again. Christian unity is vital to Christian mission and to the glory of God. If we as Christians are divided, we cannot stand. Let's face it. We live in a completely divided country and world right now. I don't need to spell this out for you. You know it's true if you watch the news or read the newspaper for even a second. But we're called in the midst of this divided world to be unified in the gospel 
in Christ as Christians. In fact, this was one of the last things that Jesus prayed when he was here on earth. John chapter 17, verses 9 through 11, and then 20 through 22. First section is Jesus praying for his disciples. And then the second section is him praying for us. So John chapter 17, 9 through 11, and then 20 through 22. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then skip down to verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these, meaning the disciples, only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. First, how mind-blowing is this, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, while he was still here on earth, prayed for you <laughs> as a Christian. That's amazing. Second, there are a lot of things that Jesus could have prayed for there. But he prayed for unity. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Christians, stop participating in circular firing squads. Jesus prayed for your unity. So, Jesus' first parable was one of logic. But then, he gives us glorious Glorious hope. Look with me at verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what's Jesus saying here? First, let's think through who are the characters. First, the strong man. The strong man is Satan. Second, there's a stronger man who binds Satan. This stronger man is Jesus. Now, what about these goods that the stronger man is plundering? These are Satan's victims. Jesus came to destroy the influence Satan has on people's lives. He came to bind and plunder Satan. I want to remind us that we're meant to be reading Mark chapter 3 in parallel with Mark chapter 1. As with last week, we see a lot of similarities between these two chapters. So, where do we see these same two characters, Satan and Jesus, in Mark chapter 1? The temptation in the wilderness, right? Jesus defeated Satan's temptation through his obedience to God. Then, 
He announces or heralds the coming of the kingdom. He's binding the strong man to plunder his goods. Binding Satan is part of Jesus' kingdom work. But we know that the battle isn't over in Mark chapter 1 or here in Mark chapter 3 in the text. Jesus will end up sacrificing his own life on the cross to free us from Satan's grip. Jesus came to crush Satan. Adam should have done this in the garden all the way back in Genesis 3, but he didn't. Jesus is following through. Satan's kingdom is falling. Jesus is the better Adam and the stronger man. But there's even more hope. Look at the next verse. Because Jesus is the stronger man who bound Satan, look at verse 28 in connection with this truth. He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. We'll get to verse 29 in just a minute, but can we just stop there and marvel at what Jesus says? Not only did he come to crush Satan, he came to forgive all sins. Think about this for a second. If you created a spreadsheet and listed out all of your sins in one column, like, like all, every sin that you've ever committed, all sins and whatever blasphemies you've ever uttered. Jesus came to forgive them. Let that sit for a second. Isn't that glorious hope? Isn't that astonishing? Don't miss the incredible scope of Jesus' forgiveness here. Because he bound the strong man, he can plunder his house and forgive your sins. I don't care what your sin is. Sexual sin, pride, anger, lying, even murder. Your sins can be forgiven by Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Remember that, that King David in the Old Testament... He committed both adultery and murder, and yet he was called righteous, called a man after God's own heart. Absurd, right? Yes, absurd, but true. Because of our God's mercy and grace toward us in the person of Christ, every sin we could possibly list can be forgiven. As we regularly sing, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Now, I don't care how many times we sing that song. It gets to me every single time. Because it's true. Except for what Jesus says in verse 29, there's no sin beyond the scope of Jesus' forgiveness. But this forgiveness isn't automatic. Forgiveness is freely given. 
It's given to those who have repented and believed in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. If this is true of you this morning, if, if you have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. All of them. If, if this is not true of you this morning, I want to tell you that it can be. You can know with certainty that your sins are forgiven by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I plead with you to do this, this very moment. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. We would even encourage you right now to click the request prayer button. We have pastors waiting to talk to you. We would love to talk with you about this good news and what it means to follow Jesus. Okay. So, now... Jesus has, has given us this logic. He's given us this glorious hope. Now let's tackle verses 29 and 30. He says, But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. So, Remember back to our spreadsheet from earlier. In the forgiven column, you can put every sin under the sun. But there's only one in the unforgivable column. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? This verse has caused distress for readers of the Gospels throughout history. Many... Uh, even Christians rightly ask the question, Have I committed this sin? This is a weighty question. And maybe the, the most important question you could ask yourself. But what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Verse 30 gives us a little bit of a clue. It says, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Sinclair Ferguson, he helpfully says this. He says, Here is the one certain sign that a man is in danger of committing this sin. A stubborn resistance to Jesus, which eventually expresses itself in treating him as the ultimate evil in our lives. It is the sin of regarding conversion to Christ and obedience to him as Lord as the ultimate folly. So, see this. The scribes in our text this morning are on the brink of committing this sin because they're attesting the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus to Satan. And from verse 22, we know from the verb tense of the word saying that this was an ongoing and continual thing for them. So Jesus is warning them. They're calling light darkness and good evil. This sin is about a heart that's completely calloused to the gospel, to the extent that they can't believe. It's a willful blindness and hardness of heart to Jesus. The saying goes 
If you're worried that you've committed the sin, you probably haven't. Because even the presence of such concern shows that your heart is still sensitive to Christ. You're not indifferent to sin. I think that's right. But I'd quickly caveat that with, but don't ignore your heart. A heart that's sensitive in this moment can be the same heart that ends up calloused and eventually hard. At the end of the day, here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Every sin under the sun can be forgiven, except for a hard-hearted unbelief resulting in blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, our text gives us three options to answer the question this morning. Who is Jesus? His family's answer, he's deranged. The scribe's answer, he's demonic. And Mark's answer, he's divine. There's no option for Jesus to just be a good man or a good teacher here. He claimed to be divine, the Son of God. Mark believed him. If Mark's right, and Satan is bound, and his house is plundered, your sins are forgiven. So, how will you answer that question today for yourself? Who is Jesus? Is he a lunatic? Liar? Lord. So this morning, we're going to end a little bit different. Before we pray, I just want to encourage you, uh, for the next five minutes, we are going to sing that song, His Mercy is More. And so I want to encourage you to just take this time uh, to spend some time in reflection. Uh, If you have not made the decision to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to encourage you to think through that. Who is Jesus? We encourage you to think through just that that list of sins that all of us have committed against a holy God. And to think through that in the person of Jesus, there's good news that all of them can be forgiven through turning and trusting in Him. So we just want you to take this time to think well through that. If you have decided to follow Christ and you've been following Him, I also want to encourage you just to think about that list of sins, and not in a sense of guilt, but in a sense of gratitude, knowing that that our sins are many, but His mercy is more. No matter what it is that you've done, you are forgiven in the person of Christ. And so spend these next five minutes as we sing, uh, being thankful and, and praising God for what He's done in the person of Jesus. So let's pray and then let's sing. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you that it clearly shows us who we are and it shows us who you are. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son here to this earth to live a perfect life in a way that none of us could. There are no sins in Jesus' sin column. And yet, we get credit for that when we trust in Him. 
because he's wiped out our debts and he's credited us with his righteousness. Lord, we thank you for that truth. Help us to trust in him even more this morning. God, we thank you for your son and we thank you for the gift of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.